Good morning. We are continuing our, our study through the book of James. And we've titled this series, or I've titled this series, Faith That Works, because that's James's challenge. James is challenging his readers to exhibit a faith that works. Not just mere vocal uh, acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is Lord, or not mere acknowledgement or assent in theology, or not mere following Jesus by words, but let's see it acted out in your life. And so that's what James is, is challenging these believers. And he begins with his challenge dealing with something that we all face. In fact, if I went around this room at, the, at this particular moment and just started asking each one of you, I bet I would hear many various forms of trials that are in your life. Okay? And James calls attention to that. He, he says in verse 2, Consider it joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials. They're various. They're They're multifaceted trials. They differ from person to person, and they differ in your life, depending on what the Lord is trying to accomplish. And so as we've been going through this book, James wants his readers to live out their faith and live out their faith in the midst of hard times. That's what we have the expression, when the rubber meets the road, right? You can talk about how good a car is, but let's see it when it's actually in use. You say you're a Christian, let's see when the tough times come. Well, he's already told them, and and we're going to be looking through, excuse me, James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 this morning, but he has already told them in verses 2 through 4 that they should have an attitude of joy in the midst of trials. And they can have this attitude of joy knowing that joy, excuse me, knowing that trials produce endurance or steadfastness in their lives. Right? The, there's, a, there's a purpose to the trial, and that goal or the outcome of the trial is maturity. So as you endure and as you remain steadfast in trials, the Lord is producing more endurance in your life, and that endurance over time is leading to maturity or Christ-likeness. James knows that during these hard times, there's going to be many questions that are going to come up. Because he's a pastor, and he says he knows that, that you're going to say, well, I understand trials are good for me. But how do I endure those trials? And James says in verse 5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. So James says, look, when you have those times in your trials and it's hard and it's tough and you're questioning like what's going on and Lord, what are you trying to teach me about your character and about myself and about the situation? James says, pray for wisdom. Ask for wisdom, and God is generous to give it to you, like a loving father gives to his children. But he does say it, he does add a caveat. And he said in verse 6, but you must ask in faith, without doubting. And he's talking about a lifestyle of, of faith, like depending upon God and not seeking other forms of wisdom. Because ultimately, as James points out later on in the book of James, in chapter 3, there's two types of wisdom only. There's a wisdom that comes from God, and there's a wisdom that comes from man. And ultimately, that's the two sources of wisdom. One is true, and one is false. 
And so you're asking in faith. Don't go to God asking for wisdom to endure trials at the same time seeking worldly wisdom. (laughs) That's right. So punctuate that statement. (laughs) So it all goes back to your faith in Jesus Christ, right? And how that is lived out in a fallen world. When times are tough and you're facing that various trials or those various trials, who or what do you turn to? That is evidence and demonstrates what you have faith in. Where is your security? Where is your hope? How do you respond when, when you want to have a child and everyone else seems to be getting pregnant? Or you want to get married and all your friends are married and you're still single? Or what about when you're sick and you're in constant pain and you would love to be well like other people? What about you have family members that are, that are struggling with sin or, or you're having trouble at work with unrealistic expectations? What do you do and who do you turn to during these times of difficulty and hardship? Where is your trust? You see, the heat of trials lays out and it lays bare where our hearts really are. It shows our own self-love our self-sufficiency, and even points out the idols that we have and that we hold to and we cling to. You know, God is working to mature you. He's working to mature you and He wants you to say like David in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's God's purpose. In 1928, I was reading recently, Many of you may know this. Alexander Fleming, he came back from a long weekend and he discovered penicillin by accident. So it was growing in, in some of his, uh, in his test tubes. And he, and he looked at it and he said, well, that's great and that's interesting. And he did some research on it. But after a few years, he put it aside and he couldn't, he couldn't make it work. And he didn't really see any long-term practical application for penicillin. Well, Howard Florey, came along, who happens to be an Adelaide native. He came along and he recognized the great potential of Fleming's work. And even though Fleming had put aside his research in the mid-30s, Flory came along in the early 1940s and he began doing clinical trials and testing and he came up with the penicillin drug that could be mass-produced that we can use today and that we still use. And it's been estimated that Flory and, and his fellow, uh, fellow co-worker, Ernest Chain, that their work has saved over 200 million lives. Imagine, imagine that being attributed, attributed to you. But for Flory, it wasn't just an academic discovery. He saw the potential in the practical application of the work that Fleming had done. You see, that's wisdom. It's taking the knowledge of God's Word and not just ingesting it as knowledge, but taking it and applying it in your life and living by it. It's seeing the big picture. You see, your faith in Christ should affect your daily life. And James, James says, look, you need wisdom. And he said, you need this wisdom to endure these trials and understand these trials. And I love James because he goes back and you'll see this over and over in that he's a pastor. He's pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And he wants to help you understand how wisdom makes a difference. So he doesn't just give you principles and says, live by them. 
He, he, he gives you examples. And that's what we're going to look at today in verses 9 through 11. Because he's going to give you two examples of wisdom in trials. Both have to deal with one issue, and that issue is wealth. And that's the issue that most of us struggle with in some time, in some capacity, and we will struggle throughout the rest of our lives. Is how we deal with wealth, how we deal with money. Well, James chooses that issue, and he gives us two examples. And so today we're going to look at a wise perspective in trials through two examples that James gives us. He talks about wisdom in poverty in verse 9 and wisdom in riches in verses 10 through 11. So let's look at the text. And I'm going to start reading in verse 2 because verses 2 through 15 is one section dealing with trials. And I want you to get the full flow of this. Verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if anyone you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind." For that man ought not to respect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Verse 9, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of his appearance is destroyed. So too... The rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. So the first thing that James does here is he talks about wisdom in poverty or wisdom in lowly uh, lowly experience. And he draws a contrast in verse 9. He says, but or rather, if you'd rather translate that conjunction that way. But he's contrasting the life of the double-minded man who has very little faith in God in the midst of his trial with the lowly person. Right? The lowly person, the lowly believer that, that has little respect, that has little uh, social standing, that has very little financial um, security in this world. And he draws attention and he said that he's a brother. And he says, but the brother. So he's letting us know up front that this is a Christian. And he's talking about believers and their attitude towards money. But he said the brother in low circumstances, the word in Greek is tapanos, and, it, and literally it means not very far off the ground. And that's why you'll have some commentaries, or sorry, excuse me, some Bible translations say lowly man. The idea is he's, he's, he's depressed down. He's been pressed down to the ground. He has very little in this world's eyes. We also, the word is also used for humility. So you can get the, get the kind of connection where if you've been pressed low, you have a low view of yourself in relation to God. But this is particular usage is, is talking about external circumstances. And we know that because he compares it to the wealthy man later. So this is a person with little wealth, little significance in the world. The world evaluates the person with little money and they said they are worth little. If you don't have a lot of money, a lot of resources... The world doesn't look very highly on you. You think about it. Once, it, it, For those that have riches, they automatically join an exclusive club. People, people give them a high standing, whether they deserve it or not. You know, they, think they're, they automatically say, well, if they're rich, they must be smart. 
right? You think about the way we look at riches and we respect riches. Well, that's the world status. World status symbol is riches. Nice house, nice car, right? All those things, glitter and gold. The world evaluates people's lives based off of financial ability and financial wealth. But the world looks at the believer and he says, look, well, the, the believer, the, the poor person, he's, he's low status. He's not worth much. He's not worth considering. Right? He's, he's common. We have the expression in the South. They say something's common. It's, it's the lowest denominator. Right? We, if somebody's in the South, if you're talking and they would say, stop using the common, stop being common or stop using common speech. We're talking about like depraved or, or low speech. Right? Pull yourself out of the gutter, mate. It's one of the things we would say, so we wouldn't add the mate. So the world looks at them and says, little significance. I love what Paul says, and this is, this is true of all of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Now, Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and you got to remember, the Corinthians were arrogant and boastful and prideful. So Paul, first of all, reminds them who they really are. And he says in verse 26 of chapter 1, he says, Therefore consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. You know, I heard this week an Arab proverb, and it says, all sunshine makes a desert. If things are always going right in your life, if you always have great money, finances, if everything was always going well and there was no trouble, your life and your heart would be a desert, right? Right? You would never trust in anything but yourself and your situation and your abilities and your finances. So one thing to remember, when God chooses, and this is the point, when God chooses that you should be in a poor situation, know that He is sovereign and He has ordained that for you. Okay? Now, I'm not talking about situations where there are consequences for your sin. If you take out a thousand loans and you ever extend yourself and you bankrupt yourself because of poor choices, that's a different issue, right? There's consequences in this world. The law of cause and effect, God has put into effect in this world, okay? We're talking about situations outside of your control. You lose your job. Somebody gets sick and you have medical bills. Things happen and you're in a low, poor situation. Know that God is in control. 1 Samuel 2.7, the Lord makes poor and rich He brings low and He also exalts. See, God is behind your circumstances. He is working for your benefit. What? To produce what? Steadfastness, endurance, so that they can have His perfect result, which is maturity. That doesn't mean they aren't hard, that times aren't tough, right? It doesn't mean it's it's enjoyable, right? But remember, James is talking about faith. He's going about to faith. In God. And if your faith is real, it will have practical workings in your life in the midst of trials. That's what he's talking about. So when times are tough and your finances are low, know that God is working. I think about the Apostle Paul and 
and the end of his life, 2 Timothy is his, his letter. You could even title it the letter of a dying man. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says to Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. You think about the way the world viewed the Apostle Paul? I, I found a great statement, a great quote from Alexander McLaren, one of his commentaries on Paul, and he, and he says this about Paul. He says, Paul's life, he said, it had been a, but a failure of a life if judged by worldly standards. You see, he had suffered the loss of all things. He had thrown away position and prospects. He had exposed himself to sorrows and toils had been all his days as a poor man and in solitary. He had been hunted and despised and laughed at by Jew and Gentile. He had worried and been badgered by even by so-called brethren. He loved, even though they loved him less, he loved more. And now the end of his life is near. A prison and the headsman's sword are the world's wages to its best teacher." You think about it from the world's standpoint, Paul's life was a waste. That's the idea of a drink offering, right? You would offer a drink offering, it'd be, it'd be profitable or uh, expensive wine, and you'd pour it out on the offering. Now, you do it as a sacrifice to the Lord. But the world looks at that and says, whoa, what a waste of good wine. What a waste of a life. See, that's the world's evaluation for the lowly person, the believer that, that doesn't have much. They look at you and they say, what a waste of life. But God has a different evaluation. And we'll see that in just a second. But there is a danger for those of us that have less. For those of you that have less. Because you know, a poor man can love money just as much as a rich man. right? A poor man can covet what he doesn't have. Can want it so bad that he will do anything to get it, even steal and lie. Right? It's, that's, that's, uh, it leads to idolatry where you want something so bad that you're willing to sin to get it. That's, idolatry shows that the circumstances in our life show if we lack financial means, show where our hearts are. Right? We don't, do we trust in God? Or are, we, are we constantly trying to acquire wealth and material things so that we have some measure of security for ourselves? But their natural reactions for the, the poor man are, are resentment. We resent it, right? In our flesh, we are discontent. We, we don't accept that this is from God and we want it to change. And we'll do anything to get it to change, even sin. Fear. Fear is huge, right? You, you don't have a lot. Rather than trusting God, having faith in God that He's looking after you, you're fearful and you worry and it eats you up in the inside, can lead to depression. You complain and you grumble against God with an unthankfulness because, Lord, you put me in this position. Lord, why? But that comes, where, that, that comes into dealing with the wisdom aspect. And that's why James uses this as examples because as a low person, a person without much means, you need the wisdom that he's been talking about to understand your situation and to, and to live out the Christian life in faith. But James says the only is that he says the brother of 
of humble circumstances or low position, but he is to glory in his high position. Okay? So if you have a low circumstances, he said you're to glory. The word also there means boast. You're to, you're to boast in, your, in the spiritual reality that you really have. The world looks at you and says you are lowly and you're worthless But God says, let me tell you what you really look like. Let me tell you what you're really worth. And to do that, we need to turn over to Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians chapter 1. I love Ephesians. All right, Ephesians. Paul's beautiful, this beautiful section. Man, Ephesians 1. I want you to just listen. Right? If you, you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can. But I want you to think about all the things that God has done. Now, these things will not change based on circumstances. These things, that, as you would say, are locked in. Right? These are spiritual realities. He says, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So you're blessed. He said, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. So He's chosen you. Verse 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. So He's predestined you to be an adopted son or daughter. Right? To the praise and glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed. Verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So in Him you have redemption, you have forgiveness. Verse 8, He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to a kind intention which we purposed in Him. So He's made known to you the mystery of His will. You can know God's will through His Word with a view to the ministration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, in the heavens and the earth, in Him we have also obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. You've been what? Predestined. You, you, you have an inheritance promised to you as a co-heir in Christ. Verse 12, To this end we were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's the true spiritual reality. That's the true spiritual reality of of where you are, regardless of your circumstances. These things never change. And that's what James is saying is that you you need to exalt. If you're in a low position and God has brought you low and you don't have much, then in your low position, you can exalt by keeping your attitude and your mind focused on the things of love, focused on the things that cannot and will not change. That's how you have faith in trials. You remember the character of, Right? And the promises of God. That's how you can glory. That's how you can exalt in your low position. When you're going through that tough trial, you focus in on God's character and His nature and His revealed to us in His Word. And you focus in on what He's done for you. It changes your perspective. That's that wisdom coming out. All right? that it even changed what Paul even says, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, after, after telling him who they are, 
In verse 29, he says that no one may boast before God. But in verse 30, he says, But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's what James is telling his readers to do. He's telling you, boast in God. Now, I know what you're saying. Wait, Pastor, I thought we aren't supposed to boast. I thought we aren't supposed to have pride. But when it's used in Scripture, and James uses it later on in a negative way in the book, but when it's used in Scripture, it's talking about personal pride, personal glory, self self-elevation, right? It's okay to boast in God, boast in who He is and what He's done. So when you're going through that tough time in your life, and when you're low, and you don't have the means to give you a measure of security, you can boast in God and say, Lord, I know you've brought me low, but here are the things that, that, that haven't changed. All those things in Ephesians 1. God's love for you. You realize God could not demonstrate His love for you any greater than what He's already done. Right? For God so loved the world that what? He gave His only begotten Son. The cross is the greatest picture of love that God can give to you. Right? He gave His only Son. He died on the cross. So when you're going through those tough times, you have to remember God's character and His promises and His works for you. Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our lowly state into conformity with the body of His glory. We are waiting for that. That's why we, we, we pray, Maranatha, O Lord Jesus, come. You see, the, the poor man is considered a nobody here on this earth, but in God's eyes, he had a high and elevated, exalted position. If you are in this room and you are struggling financially and God is bringing you through this as a trial, remember that you are a co-heir with Christ. Right? That's where you are. You've got to look beyond your immediate circumstances and you focus on things as they really are. And that's the spiritual reality. There's always a spiritual reality behind the physical situation. Like I remember going up to Crown Point with my wife, and it's a, it's a place in Oregon along the Columbia Gorge. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. You go up on this, this crown, this point, and you're, you're up, um, don't ask me how many meters, I think you're up about three or 4,000 feet, and the, down below you, the, the Columbia River running through northern Oregon, it separates Oregon, state of Oregon from the state of Washington. It flows through uh, this mountain area, and it's just beautiful, and it's lush and green. It opens up, and you have the city of Portland, but you get up on this, this crown point, and you can see for miles and miles in each direction, and just the beauty of the, the river flowing through. Now, when we were down there beside the river and the road runs parallel to the river, you don't really get to see the beauty of the river. You don't get to see the beauty of the surrounds. But when you get up high and your perspective has changed and you can see the things as they really are, that's what James is talking about here. When you're in a low position, it's easy to focus on what's immediately around you. But it takes an elevated mindset a mindset that remembers the spiritual realities. And it remembers also, hey, God views you 
and views your circumstances. You know, wisdom and trials gives you that big picture perspective. No longer are you focusing in on your individual circumstances, but you're thinking about Christ and His exalted status and your exalted status alongside Him as a co-heir. With strong faith, you're guided by wisdom and it causes you to boast in God and what He has done. You are His treasured possession and He loves you and He's died for you. And He demonstrates this in the cross at Calvary. So James says, look, the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. But then he gives another example. And he says, the rich man, in verse 10, is to glory in his humiliation or his low position. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. So he also gives an example of of the wealthy brother. Now, I believe he's talking about a brother here, right? Because he, he ties it in. When he says the brother of humble circumstances, and then he says in verse 10, and the rich man, because he's, he's tying the two together, and, they, and he ties in the word boast. He says, so the, the, the rich man should boast or to glory in his low position. So when you think about wealth, you think about the fact that if God has chosen you as a believer to give you more than you need, that's wealth. But one thing you have to remember is there's a stewardship with that. Every, I teach my son this. Everything that he has, talking to my son who's six, is given to him. He didn't purchase any of it, right? So I tell him he needs to be a good steward of what he's given. Because ultimately, everything that we have is God's, and it's been given to us by God for us to use for our needs, His glory, and to help others. Right? God gives you, and this is a, it's a good thing to remember when it comes to wealth, God gives you what you can handle. Because you really remember, this is a trial he's talking about. We, we can, most of us can relate to the, to the lowly poor trial. right? We, we, we've done that before in our times in our lives. Maybe you're going through that now. We, we can relate to that. But riches are a trial. Because God knows that riches are quick to turn a person's heart away from Him. Riches... Riches incur a greater accountability. So if you start thinking, well, Lord, I'd like to win the lottery or I'd like to, I'd like to have a lot more money. Luke 12, Jesus says, From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they have been entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. There's a greater accountability for, for those that have more than they need. That's, and I think most of us, that's where we are. We might not be the millionaire wealthy, but we have more than what we need. There's a greater accountability. Look, one of the things I did as I moved into Australia as a newcomer is, is I did a little bit of research about Australia. And now one thing about Australia is that it is the second, sorry, it's the second wealthiest country in the world after Switzerland in 2019 when you measure GDP, gross national product, and you divide it up among the population. Australia is the second wealthiest country in the world. It is the 13th largest economy. The employment rate as of last October was 5.3%. And I found this interesting, that it's actually set a record that the Australian economy has not had a recession since 1991. There's no other country in the world that can say that. Realize that? Recession is two quarters of negative growth. Since 1991, Right? And so when you think about it from a worldwide perspective, regardless of your individual situations, 
We're a wealthy, it's a wealthy nation. The poor in this country, right, and I saw a statistic, 13% of Australians identify as poor or have uh, or live below the poverty line. The poor in this country would be wealthy anywhere else in the world, right? We're rich. And they say the same thing in the United States is the same way. We're, we're, we're rich countries in the Western world. And I, as I was thinking about this, I said, well, just comparison. You know, Alex is talking about going to Kenya. And so I just put out Kenya since it was on my mind. Kenya has a population of 51 million. They, it's the 62nd wealthiest country in the world. The average income is $3,868 per person per year. By the way, the Australian number is, like, I think, 58,000. They have almost doubled the unemployment rate, which is 9.3%. Right? Just one country. I just picked one random country is on my mind. Guys, we're wealthy. Right? Now, in, poverty is always judged in a context. Like Jesus says, the poor may always, will always be with you because the poor is always relative depending on where you live. Right? It doesn't mean you aren't going through tough times in this particular situation. But also remember, as tough as things are for you, most of you, most of us, had never have to worry about where we're going to live. We, at the very least, we have friends, family, somebody, even in a church we could, we could bunk with, right? We, we never had to worry about right, food in some sense. I bet if each one of you went home tonight and didn't buy any groceries for a week, I bet you could live off of what's in your cabinets, right? I bet you could go even farther, maybe even two weeks. Now, you might be eating frozen vegetables for a few days, but... but you see my point? Places like Kenya, where, where people are waiting years for jobs. So that God is sovereign over circumstances in your life. He knows what you can handle, and He knows what will turn your heart away from Him into idolatry. God decides how to distribute wealth, and it's all within His will. It takes wisdom, and this is James's point, it takes wisdom to navigate the trial of having more than you need, of having riches. And stewardship of much material blessings is going to lead to greater accountability. Rather than asking God for riches, as we're kind of tempted at times to do, Proverbs 38 and 9 is a, is a, great, a great prayer, a great statement. Proverbs says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I may that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I may not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Right? So James says, look, the rich man should boast. Well, how does a, how does a rich man boast? Well, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 is a great passage. Paul actually quotes it in 1 Corinthians. And this is how a rich man should boast. Thus saith the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, let not a mighty man boast in his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. See, that's how the rich man boasts. Not in his riches, Right? The strong man not in his might, the wise man not in his wisdom, but we boast that we know God. Because ultimately, that's the benefit of trials. If you, if you, were, to, if you were to break it down to its basis element, right? we want to be mature in Christ, that's the goal, but the basis element is that we get God. 
James says later that if you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. That's the whole design. That's what God wanted with Adam and Eve. He walked and talked with them. Then they sinned and rebelled, and it changed the relationship between man and God forever. That's the whole point of, 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 of Paul's um, huge section in, second, in, excuse me, in Colossians chapter 1 and 2 that, that Christ, or should be God through Christ, is reconciling the world to himself. Right? We've been reconciled, we get God. And not only does James say, look, the, the rich man should boast, but he says that the rich man is like a flower in grass, he will pass away. He will fade away. Not only will he fade away, at the very end of verse 11, he says, sorry, he said in verse 11, he will fade away. In verse 10, he will pass away. So when you, when you think about James and you, and you think about this, this situation with the rich man, he said, look, he's in a low position, but there's going to be a future for him. But wisdom helps the rich believer to have the right perspective. He's in a, he's in a low position. Now you say, I know what you're saying. Look, okay, verse, verse 10 the rich man is to boast in his humiliation, is to boast in his, his low position. What does that mean? What does it mean? that Has he going to boast in his low position? Well, the rich man has found something far greater than anything that he has. He has found something so much more important than riches. He's found Jesus Christ. It's the pearl of great price. He thinks about the glories of the future that awaits him. And when he looks at his riches and he looks at his treasure, he realizes it is worthless in the grand scheme of the things of this life. And in the the future glory that awaits him, he knows that the riches are nothing. He's humbled. He has that humility. The wisdom that he's been praying for to understand his trial, understand life. He's grown strong in his faith so he can say, it's not about my riches that give me security or it's not in the riches that cause me to be prideful, but I'm going to boast in God and I'm going to be the good steward. It's like the, the story, the fable of the tortoise and the geese. Tortoise made friends with two geese and he asked the geese, hey, I, I love the way you guys fly. Can you, can you take me up there? And they said, well, I don't see how we could carry you. And so the tortoise, very ingeniously, worked out a plan where each goose would grab hold of a large branch and the tortoise would would grab his mouth around the center of the two branches. And and it worked and the geese took off and the tortoise is flying around and he's enjoying flying with his friends. And two, two children look up there and say, hey, look at those geese. Aren't they ingenious for the way they can carry around that that tortoise? Well, the tortoise heard this, and he opened his mouth to, to tell him and set him straight, and he fell to his death, right? So, there, so that's the rich man. You know, he, he has a choice. He can, he can boast in his riches and perish, right? Or he can boast in God and, and demonstrate faith. Demonstrate he has the right perspective. He understands that, that his wealth can cause his love for others to grow cold and understand that wealth cannot buy one more day of life. I knew a guy when I was in Southern California. Uh, I worked as a vendor visiting all these different grocery stores and shops. And, and um, he was one of the meat managers. And he won the lottery. Now, he only won the small prize of $200,000, Right? And I remember asking him, I said, 
well, what are you going to do? You know, what's your plan? You got $200,000 coming to you. And he goes, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit my job and I'm going to go on a long vacation with my wife. <laughs> and he, he showed me at that moment that, uh, that he wasn't a good steward. He wasn't a good manager of his money. Because, I mean, $200,000, really? You know, if you make $50,000 a year, that's four years worth of living expenses. Uh, and Southern California is expensive. And so what, what it did, it showed me that it was a good thing, good thing to realize because wealth, the increased wealth in our lives doesn't change our attitude towards wealth. It doesn't change our hearts. We're still the same people. Just because we have more money, if we're, if we're, if we're greedy and we're, we're unwise stewards with a little bit, just because we get a lot more really suddenly, doesn't mean we're going to change overnight. No, one will manage money wisely, right? He who has given little and proves himself will be given more, right? And now that's the stewardship over talent, over resources, over responsibilities, not necessarily money. But I actually looked up and I started thinking about it, and I read, according to multiple studies, 70% of all lottery winners, this includes whatever amount they win, 70% of all lottery winners go broke, totally. 1% go broke within the first year. You see, the things, and what they learn is that, and what you guys know, the things that you buy don't produce happiness, Right? The, the more money just allows you to buy more things more quickly. You see, it takes, it takes wisdom from the Lord to be able to navigate this trial if you're a rich man. And most of us in here have more than we need. It takes wisdom to navigate that. Right? We have to be, be willing to, to go to God in faith and understand that we're stewards, understand that what we've been given is temporary. And James makes this point. He said, there's a transient nature to life. Like I said earlier, he said, he said, the rich man will pass away and he's going to fade away. And he said, he's like the flower of grass. Right? You can't get more transient than, than wildflowers growing on the side of the road. Or a rich man, he, he can forget if he boasts wrongly that he's like that flower. He, he's very pretty and the flowers, wildflowers are beautiful. My daughter loves to pick them. So if you have any wildflowers, hide them if you invite us over. Right? But James is thinking about Isaiah here. Isaiah 6 and 7. All flesh is grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. And he said it's going to pass away. And what he's saying when it's passed away is that life is short. And when you die, you can't take anything with you. You're like Job. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. Recently read Kirk Douglas, the actor Kirk Douglas passed away, and um, Spartacus, many of you know him as Spartacus, or uh, my, one of my favorites, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Disney movie, passed away. He had, but what was interesting is he left, he, he left none of his $60 million fortune to any of his kids. He donated it all to, all to charity. Well, you know, he knew he couldn't take it with him. Right? You want to do something, something noble and wise with it. But James says, look, it's going to pass away. It's like the flower. And then he goes through and he gives a parable to kind of further illustrate that point. He spends more time on the rich man because it's the rich. And when we have a lot is when we're tempted to trust in those riches. And we forget the, the transient nature of life. And he says in verse 11, he says, and this is a parable. Right? The, the, he, gives, he basically gives four things in this para, parabolic 
form before he makes his, his like punch statement. And he says, For the sun rises with a scorching wind, and it withers the grass, and the flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. And then the, the statement is, So too is the rich man. So he, he pictures wildflowers growing. Now, in Southern California, there's north of L.A. County, actually not too far north of where I was living, there's a, there's a great state park, excuse me, there's a great state park. They have all these wildflowers that grow. In fact, because it's kind of remote, they'll all bloom at once. And it's, it's like 20 or 30 miles, square miles of area of just wildfires. In fact, you can see this wildfire bloom from space. They've taken pictures, international space stations that flies over and they'll zoom in and, and you can see this wildflower bloom. What's interesting about these flowers is they bloom and they're beautiful. They don't last long because what happens in Southern California, we have what's called the Santa Ana winds. They're winds that shift from the desert. And you can go from uh, 80 degrees to about 100 degrees, which would be roughly mid-20s Celsius to 40, 42 degrees Celsius in the span of roughly six or seven hours. It can, it can turn just like that as it blows in these desert winds. And these flowers, the wind and the heat, it just withers them and it will destroy them. So you have, you know, you have a week of just beautiful flowers and then within a day they're two, they're dead and they're gone. Well, they have the same thing in Israel. Southern California is a lot like Israel in that sense is that they call them Sirocco's and there's these desert winds and they, and they come up from the desert in the south and they'll hit the wildflower blooms and they'll just destroy them. Fierce heat, fierce wind. They don't last long, right? He said, that's like the rich man. He's transient in his, in his pursuits. He said, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. His pursuits, his lifestyle, even the word could be used to describe journeys in his journeys or in his business. The rich man will go suddenly and unexpectedly just like the rest of us. You see, James is, is dealing with this this. Temptation of riches and reminding the rich person that his life will fade away and that's passing, that his wealth and his social position is, is really nothing compared to the glories of Christ. You know, when I was in seminary, we visited the crematorium, the Los Angeles crematorium, one of the largest in the world. And when you got a city of, well, a county in the 20 Roughly, Count Trani is roughly 20 million. So imagine the size, population of Australia almost in one county, you know, largest, one of the largest counties in the world besides, I think, New York, um, crematorium. So we went in there as part of a class we were taking on um, dealing with end-of-life stuff. And, you know, went in there, and, and it, was, it was amazing, and it was eye-opening. And what, one of the things that I, I thought was so interesting is after they've finished... I'm not going to get too descriptive. But after they finish doing what they're doing, what comes out can fit in a box that's roughly less than six inches cubed. That's all that we are, is dust. And they have these boxes sitting there, and they have them waiting, waiting to be claimed by their family and friends or whoever. Sometimes they're not claimed. But I'm looking at these boxes, and you can look at these boxes, and you don't know if this person was rich, this person was poor, this person was famous. This person was infamous. You don't know anything about these people, right? The end of man is the same for all of us. 
right? You go to a cemetery, right? There's some great monuments that people build to above the ground to celebrate people's lives, but what's down below is the same, right? Each one of those boxes is the same, right? It kept change. It helped me how it changed my perspective as I was thinking about life. You know, James in this section of scripture, he's he's giving examples to believers about living out their faith in the midst of monetary trials, whether they're, they're trials that are in a lowly, poor nature or they're in a, in a high, as the world would evaluate it, rich perspective, right? But James goes and he says, look, it's a working faith that considers trials joy. It's faith that, that goes to God and asks God for help in the midst of trials. And it's faith that trust in the Lord when he, when he gives us different amounts of material possessions, knowing that we're a steward. Look, just like my experience at the crematorium, every person is equal also at the foot of the cross. The same grace that saves the lowly, poor person is the same grace that saves the rich person. So in Christ, there's no slave, There's no free, there's no male, there's no female, there's no ethnicities, there's no social barriers. We're all one in Christ. We're equal at the foot of the cross. You know, today we've looked at a wise perspective in trials. We've looked at James, two examples. Looked at wisdom in poverty and wisdom in riches. You know, let us boast not in our riches, not in our strength, not in our wisdom, but let us boast in Jesus Christ and keep our faith centered on Him. That's James's challenge. I'm going to end with a quote from John Newton. Many of you know, Amazing Grace. He says, Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was and I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God I am what I am. And that's us. We are what we are by the grace of God. Have faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you have saved us. Father, we thank you for the examples that you've given us with James's heart as he tries to shepherd his congregation and, and in, in consequence, us as well through trials in their lives and trials in our lives. Father, we, all, we know it always comes back to our faith and is that faith demonstrated in our lives? We know that the trials that you send us through are for our good. They produce endurance or steadfastness and therefore our maturity. But we thank you, Lord, that you are not far off. That you desire for us to draw near to you. To seek your face. To trust in you. To focus on what you have done and who you are. Lord, I thank you again that... Your word has revealed your will to us. I pray for steadfastness for the lives of the believers here, that we would not just be hearers of the word, that we would be doers. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. Have a great week. See you next time.